So Acts chapter 1, verse 4, verse 4 and we're going to go to verse 8. It says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Jerusalem? I'm sorry, the kingdom to Israel. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the father had fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. Father God, we just come before you right now just thanking you for what you are doing. We glorify you. We give you honor. We give you praise. And we're just saying, Yahweh, that you will speak to us today in a very different way, that we will be mindful of your presence, that we will be mindful of the glory of your goodness, that we become more aware of who you are and what your spirit is doing in this place and throughout the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. We are experiencing right now an amazing tension that is existing in the argument between spirituality and religion. If you were to ask a lot of people, um, what religion are you? Some people would say, well, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Then others would say, well, I go to church, but I have a personal relationship with God. And so the context of this, this whole uh, schism or this distinction between spirituality and religion is kind of what we're wrapped up in right now, um, in this decade. And many, actually many researchers and journalists have also taken note of this argument and have done research just to talk about this schism that we have between those who would say, well, I'm spiritual, and those who would say that I'm religious. For instance, Four in ten millennials say that religion is very important in their lives. Just 20% of the millennials say that they attend religious services on a weekly basis. So four in ten say religion is very important, but only 20% of them attend some form of religious service. This is according, this is to, um, based off of what Becky, Becca Alper of the Pew Research Center said in 2015. According to Tommy Shake, in her Huffington Post article entitled Religion Versus Spirituality, stated that one out of five Americans consider themselves spiritual but not religious. According to David Moschke and Michael Lipka of the Pew Research, they said Americans have become less religious in recent years by standard measures such as how important they say religion is to them and their frequency of religious service attendance and prayer. But at the same time, 
the share of people across a wide variety of religious identities who say they often feel a deep sense of spiritual peace and well-being as well as a deep sense of wonder about the universe has risen. In other words, a desire to know God is on the rise, but at the same time, the need for having a religious affiliation in one form or another has declined. I have a friend who um, is part of like my poetry team, or not my poetry team actually, but part of my poetry, um, trying to say it, like atmosphere or, or, or fellowship. Say it again. Network, there we go. See, big words. That's what I'm talking about. Network. Okay, so uh, a friend that's part of my uh, poetry network back in Houston, we had this discussion, and this was like after uh, the Beyonce performance um, of the Grammy Awards in which um, people had said that Beyonce was doing a tribute to uh, the goddess, uh, the, the Yoruba goddess Oshun and the performance that this was part of her dedication, this was kind of like a dedication to the Yoruba goddess. And we were having a discussion and she's like a very quote unquote spiritual person. And she's part of that trend of a lot of African-American people that are actually starting to say, we want to know what did our ancestors worship? We want to be more connected with the, with, the, with the traditions or the religions of our ancestors. We don't know too much about this, this Christianity thing. And so she's part of that circle. And so we were having a discussion, and she was noting how upset she was with the Christian church. For instance, she mentioned how her pastor, for about five to ten minutes, she was um, mentioning how upset she was with her pastor, saying that her pastor was, you know, was hypocritical. You know, he, he would cuss, he would smoke, he would do things that were not seemingly Christian, but yet at the same time, her mother, who is a worker at the church, would be, in a sense, dogged out by the same pastor who was pastoring. And so she took note of that, and this kind of fed into that, uh, her, that mindset that I don't want to be part of the church anymore. I'd rather go do my own thing because it seems like the church is religious but not spiritual. And so it's at times like this that I think that it's extremely important to talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit pay, plays a factor into our lives today. Amen? And I'm pretty sure that there are many in here who have family and friends and loved ones who are sick and tired of traditions and church politics and dead religion where it, comes, where it seems that it's all about mind control and getting money from people to build elaborate buildings, man-made kingdoms, and financing extravagant lifestyles at the expense of people. So if you talk to some people, they'd rather be anywhere but here on a Sunday morning especially millennials. So let's talk about how the Holy Spirit makes a difference in this equation. The Holy Spirit of the Spirit of Yahweh, third member of the triune Godhead, was highly involved in the daily activities of biblical Israel. In other words, when you talked about Israel, or you talk about Judaism as a religion, there was really not a separation between the impact or the reality or the presence of the Holy Spirit and the lifestyle and the culture of the Jewish people. There were three feasts that, um, that the uh, 
that on the Hebrew calendar in which all of Israel was required to appear before God. One, one of those feasts was Pesach, or what we know as Passover, or the Feast on the Eleven Bread, right? That's the feast that we just got finished celebrating. The other feast is the Feast of Shavuot, S-H-A-V-O-V-U-O-T, or Feast of Weeks, or what we know as the Feast of Pentecost. And then the third feast is the Feast of Sukkot, or Feast of Ingathering, or Tabernacle. We had just finished celebrating the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, during the weekend of the Feast of Passover. Pesach, or Passover, if you remember, is a festival that celebrates the, the liberation of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. So it's interesting that God would link this particular feast with the liberation of the Jewish people and also the liberation of us from the bondage of sin, right? So we see how God does things in patterns. And so when you begin to really study these feasts, you will see the connection between what God is doing and what, and what has taken place historically. So the, the, the feast of Passover or, or Pesach, which represents the liberation of the Jewish people or Israel from the bondage of Egypt, is also the same time in which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who liberates us from the bondage of sin. Romans Sorry, not Romans, but John chapter 8, verse 36 says this. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We are free because Christ freed us from the bondage of sin. Now, according to the Jewish calendar, on May 30th of this year, we are approaching another major festival called the Feast of Shavuot. The Feast of Shavuot, as we also know as the Feast of Pentecost, or in English, the Feast of Weeks, is named this because this feast, is, this festival occurs exactly seven weeks or 50 days from Passover. The Feast of Shavuot is a, commemor a commemoration of two events of great significance. Number one, it is the annual memorial of when Yahweh gave the Torah, the law, thereby establishing the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. So one, of the, so one of the things that is celebrated for the Feast of Shavuot is the giving of the law, the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant with Israel. And number two, it is also the annual harvest of wheat, of wheat in which wheat is separated from the tare. When John the Baptist spoke about the coming of Jesus, who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, as well as when Jesus spoke about the parable of the wheat and the tare in Matthew chapter 13, 24 to 30, it was in reference to the harvest of wheat or the feast of Shavuot. This is where Acts chapter 1 verse 4 through 8 comes into play because Yeshua is speaking 
about the coming of the Holy Spirit who was already present in the ministry of of in present in his ministry, but about the um, about to be evident in the life of the followers. Forty days that he spent with them prior to his ascension is in preparation for the feast of Shavuot. Amen. And we're approaching that feast and I can actually detect right now. And I'm pretty sure many of you are, are feeling it that we are in a desperate need for an experience of the feast of Shavuot. We are in desperate need for the Holy spirit to become extremely active in the life of the church locally and globally. This is extremely important. So He's about to unleash upon the believers at this specific and crucial time on the Jewish calendar, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given for two reasons, or primarily two reasons. One, the Holy Spirit is to inaugurate the new covenant Israel. Number two, the Holy Spirit is to empower New Covenant Israel to be Yeshua's witnesses to the nations. Let me repeat that again. The Holy Spirit is given to inaugurate New Covenant Israel. And number two is to empower New Covenant Israel to be Yeshua's witnesses to the nations. This is not replacement theology. I am not advocating by any means that God has replaced Israel with the church. What I am saying is that God, through his spirit, has separated new covenant Israel, the wheat, from old covenant Israel, the tare. The wheat represents Israel that was looking to the promise of the Messiah and has witnessed the fulfillment of this promise and were awaiting the Holy Spirit to come. The tear is Israel that refused to believe that Messiah has come and therefore cannot be used by God. Paul stated in Romans chapter 9 that not all of Israel is Israel. The issue of the wheat and the tear has more to do with faith than anything. If you were part of the faith, if you were the faithful that was looking for the Messiah to become evident, you were part of the wheat. However, if you were part of that group that saw the miracles, saw the things that the Messiah was doing, as he was declaring that he is the Son of God, as he was declaring that he has come to do the work of the Father, but yet you rejected what he was doing, then you were considered part of the tear. So the Holy Spirit enforces the new covenant thereby reconstituting Israel. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and we're going to read from verses 19 to 20. Luke 22, we're going to read from verses 19 to 20. And it reads, and when he had taken some bread and given thanks he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next verse. And in the same way, he took the cup after they have eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant 
in my blood. What is this new covenant that Yeshua was talking about? Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, and we're going to read from verse 31 to 34. This is about the new covenant. And it says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and on their hearts I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 34, they will teach, they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, no Yahweh, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember them no more. Amen. The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was a marriage between Yahweh and Israel. And it was enforced by the giving of the Torah, which codified the relationship between both parties. Moses was the mediator, the go-between of the covenant. The establishment of the covenant and the giving of the Torah, the law of God, became the very first Shavuot or Pentecost. The law was given on stone tablets, and the agreement was simply this. Israel was obligated to keep the commandments, all 613, and Yahweh on his end would be their God and Israel on their end would be his people and the land of Israel was given as a form of provision to them. In other words, the stone tablets would say stuff like, um, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your spirit, all your, you know, all of who you are basically. Stuff like, uh, do not steal or do not kill. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. These were parts of the agreement. This was part of the law that Israel was obligated to keep. One of the most important laws with that, this, that was there was that you should have no other gods before me. And we all know, Bible readers, Israel flopped on this many times. And as a result of this, as a result of going after other gods, it was, it was seen as a sense of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. How many of y'all remember the God called Baal, B-A-L, B-A-A-L, Baal? The Baal means husband, lord, or master. That is the, that's the Semitic Hebrew word for Baal. Baal was the, one of the major deities that Israel would tend to go after to worship. So in the eyes of God, when they would pursue this husband, this Lord, this master, other than seeing Yahweh as their husband, Yahweh viewed that as being unfaithful. 
In other words, Israel, you're cheating on me. You're my wife. I bought you out of I brought you out of Egypt. I paid the bride price by the blood. I brought you here. I gave you this land. I gave you all. I hooked you up. And now you're cheating on me. Brothers, where are my brothers at? All the men at World Outreach. I love the men at World Outreach. I'm part of the men at World Outreach. If you bought a brand new house, a brand new car, and you gave this all to your wife, and your wife goes out and she meets another guy who don't got a car, who don't got a house, wouldn't you be upset? Wouldn't the, wouldn't, wouldn't the ramifications of that be that, you know what, my wife is about to get kicked out of this house, this brand new house. She's about to lose this brand new car. Thank God this doesn't happen in this church. Amen. But you can kind of see why Yahweh was called, why he would consider himself a jealous God, because they would go after another husband, another, another master, another Lord, instead of them pursuing him. He wants to be loved. He wants to be adored. He paid the price. So as a result of that, they invoke the curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And in the book of Jeremiah, the people of Israel are under judgment as a result of disobedience to Yahweh. And in this passage that we just read, God is going to propose to Israel again. But this time, instead of giving them the Torah on stone tablets, as he has done before with Moses, this time he's going to write the law on their hearts by which they would know him. Every time, everything is the same as the covenant before, except this time, the law is written in a different place. This is the new covenant that Yeshua was talking about. So in other words, I don't have to go to a stone tablet or be reminded, hey, you know, don't cheat on God or don't steal or don't do this or don't do that. The relationship is based upon God writing his laws in our hearts so that we, have, uh, we are encouraged within our being by God himself to not violate the things of God. Question, how is God going to write this law on their hearts? Is there a special ink pen by which God is going to make things happen? Is there a permanent marker specifically designed for, the use, for his usage on the human heart? The answer is no. The Holy Spirit who indwells us is the personification of the written law of God on our hearts. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4. Give it up for the projection team. They are on point this morning. They are seriously on point. It says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Verse 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, verse 4, 
so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. The law or the Torah came from God. The difficulty of keeping the law is due to our carnality. It is because man is spiritually dead that we fail to do the will of God and consequently fall short of God's standard of righteousness. We have a nature that desires sin that desires to sin. The word for sin in the Greek is this word hamartia, or hamartia. And hamartia in the Greek mindset was kind of like in the, have, you, have anybody read like a Greek tragedy? Maybe like uh, Romeo and Juliet or, or, or Othello or whatever. In a Greek tragedy, um, the, the, the reason why it was called a Greek tragedy is what you had as the hero and every Greek tragedy had a hero. I'll give you an example, Oedipus, one of my favorite Greek tragedies. And in the Greek tragedy, the way that it would happen is that regardless of whatever decision that they would make, no matter how in their mindset they was making the best decision, they would always turn around making a bad choice. They just couldn't get right. And so in the Greek tragedy, this was called a harmatia. In other words, they, the heroes were tragically flawed. And so that's the same concept that we have in, in, in what, why Paul uses this in the Greek is to show that we are tragically flawed before the eyes of God. I mentioned Oedipus. And if you remember the story of Oedipus, I don't know how many of you paid attention in literature class, but Oedipus had a prophecy, right? His parents had a prophecy that they would have a son who basically would kill the father and marry the mother. So they had this really great plan, as many of us human beings have, really extravagant, amazing plan that they were going to ship. That when they have their son, they're going to ship their son to a distant country. So Oedipus ends up growing up in a household that was not his biological household, that was not his father, not his mother. He's in a distant country. Well... Oedipus leaves that country eventually to come back and on his travel basically he's coming back to the country of his birth he doesn't know this but he's coming back to the country of his birth and he encounters a man on the road and he basically kills the man he did not know that the man was his father as a result of killing the man there was like a, a like an uh, like a sphinx or some uh, mystical animal. I think it was a sphinx. I couldn't remember. This is a long time since I remember this story. But he had to basically solve this riddle. And the riddle was, it went like this. What has uh, four legs in the morning, two legs in the, in, the eve, in the afternoon, and three legs at night? And because of the, and because of the sphinx, or the, it was a curse that was placed on this land, and so whoever was able to solve this riddle basically will lift the curse off of the land and marry the, uh, and marry the queen of the land because the queen's husband died. Oedipus didn't know this, but he solves the riddle. He says, hey, it's a human being, a man. In the morning or at birth, a man crawls on four legs. Or, I mean, crawls on all four. 
When they get into their adulthood or get past that stage, they start walking on two legs. And then at, when they get older or in the evening of their life, they use a cane. So he solves the riddle. So as a result, the curse is lifted. He's celebrated. He marries the queen of that country. The queen happens to be his mother. He didn't know this. <laughs> But when he finds out, he pulls out his eyes. He gouges his eyes and goes blind. So basically, Oedipus, who's the tragic hero, I mean, he had an amazing story. I mean, I mean who wouldn't want a man who, uh, to rule them who could solve a riddle that would, that would you know, lift a, uh, lift a curse off of the land that they're in? So he was a great hero, but Oedipus was tragically flawed. So that is the state of sin that we're in. We are tragically flawed. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us, giving us a spiritual life that we are able to love God and live according to the law of God. So when the Holy Spirit came, he made us a new covenant Israel in which our nature has changed. In other words, that nature that was tragically flawed is now a nature that resembles, that looks just like that that God has. We have the same exact nature. He gives us his nature. We went from being tragically flawed to looking classy. How about that? <laughs> so God wrote the Torah on our hearts, and now we are driven with the desire to love and serve him, not by strength or might, but by his spirit. When someone says that they are spiritual, my question to them is, what spirit makes you spiritual? How do you know that you are spiritual? Because the true definition of spiritual is one who walks according to the spirit and demonstrates a love for God and a love for God's people. Spiritual is a form of activity. In other words, if you're claiming that you are spiritual, you are claiming that you engage in activities that glorify God. The Holy Spirit empowers new Israel to be a witness of Yeshua. It's the second point. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. It says that the spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 to 18. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 to 18. It says this, these signs will accompany those who have believed, who have believed. in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will, they will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. The same spirit who empowered Jesus is the same spirit who empowers the church. Spiritual people are those who function not just according to the love of God, but also the ability of God or the power of God. The church corporately demonstrates the power of God. This is not a one-man show. This is a one-God show. 
we have to get to this point where we're, where we're no longer being dependent on just the presence of the pastor or someone like Beanie Hinn, whenever he comes in town and does a conference, we run and flock to the conference because we want to experience the presence of God. We got to get to the point that the presence of God is available to each and every one of us, despite whether a conference is in town or not in town. Amen. This is not a man-made religion. God has called all of us and has equipped all of us to demonstrate his ability, his might, and his power. Looking back at Acts chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, it's interesting that after the mentioning of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the disciples were asking him, Jesus, about the restoration of Israel as a kingdom. And that his response was that the Holy Spirit will make them a witness. Wasn't the answer that they were expecting. The word witness comes from the Greek word martis, which is where we get the word martyr. In our vocabulary, a martyr is someone who is someone who dies in the name of a worthy cause. But the actual understanding is one who has a testimony and is radically changed by that testimony, that they're willing to die to give that testimony. The disciples were concerned about the national status of Israel. They were expecting that the Messiah would liberate them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. However, the Holy Spirit comes he will radically when the holy spirit comes he will radically change the apostles to the point that their testimony would expand israel beyond physical boundaries and that the entire roman world would glorify the god of israel can you see that in the plan of god here they are they were so wrapped up in when when is israel going to get back to when israel had kings like like david and and solomon where israel was just a nation that was that was sovereign to itself that the only person that they really had to answer to was their king and answer to god and that was it this was their desire this is what they were hoping so that when the messiah shows up on the scene the expectation is that the, the messiah he's going to liberate them from this and now Jesus is about to ascend, and then he tells them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He tells them that, you know, that the Holy Spirit will baptize them with power. And the question that they have in their mind is, is this the time that you're going to restore Israel? Is this the time that you're going to make Israel great again? <laughs> I ain't going to go there. <laughs> But his answer is that, no, this is the time that the Holy Spirit will empower you to be my witnesses because the mindset of God is not a local thing. It's a global thing. God is thinking globally. Their mindset was local. So the Feast of Shavuot or Shavuot mandated that Jews from all over the world will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the annual giving of the Torah, the covenant that God established with biblical Israel. The first Shavuot was for the people of Israel exclusively. The first Shavuot also marked the death of 3,000 people who violated the holiness of God. However, 
The Feast of Shavuot in Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit of the living God is poured out and made available to all flesh. And it's interesting that a Gentile by the name of Luke is the one who actually records this event. This is something that would have never happened, that a Gentile would record an event in Jewish history that you would have thought that somebody who was Jewish would record this event. But it's to show that God is opening, opening the doorway for the Gentiles to come in. The first one was simply a Jewish thing. It was simply a, an Israel thing. But the second one, this one, Acts chapter 2, this feast, however, was one for everybody. Acts chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. Acts chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. And it says that the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes. Proselytes were those who converted to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. God is not after a small portion of land. These are, these are the people who showed up. These people who showed up would be his witnesses to places which they came. God wants to expand the boundaries of Israel. Also, the very imperialism that subjugated the Jewish people would be the same method by which the gospel would be promoted. The Holy Spirit was not given to create a new religion. The Holy Spirit is the confirmation of all God has promised concerning his people. Every activity of God must be rubber stamped by the presence of God's spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no moment or no movement of God. The Feast of Passover it introduced us to the resurrected Christ. The feast of Passover introduced us to the to salvation, but the feast of Shavuot helped enable the Jews to take the message of salvation to the world. The feast of Shavuot says, "Let us become more aware of your presence. Let us experience the glory of your goodness." Let us pray. Father God, we just thank you right now. And as we hear about the Feast of Shavuot and about how your spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2 over all the people that were there and how 3,000 who died in the first Shavuot, how they died, Father God, in Acts chapter 2, we see how 3,000 became alive. And so, Father God, we are saying that that same experience that they had the same encounter that they had with your spirit, Lord, that you will make it available to us in these days and these times that when people see walk fan, that when people see Christianity, when people see believers, they don't see individuals or people who are part of a dead system that isn't working, but that they will see that there is life, that there is life in your church, that there is life among your people, and that there is something that is going on that they need to be a part of. And so, Father God, we declare, we declare, Father God, that many will come to salvation, that many will know who you are, that many will experience the spirit of Shavuot, that they will know who you are, that they will be touched, that they will be radically shifted in their 
spirit so that they won't say that they're spiritual following after Baal or following after these false gods, but they will say that they're spiritual because they know Yahweh and they know the son whom you sent, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We glorify you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.